Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Cast Dice, the podcast that explores the great big wild world of tabletop gaming that exists today. It's been said once or twice, mainly on this podcast, that we are in the middle of a gaming renaissance. There are just too many good games that we can spend our hobby time and our hobby dollars on. And it, it, it gets to be where we don't know what to play next. And I guess that's the purpose of this podcast. It's to dig into the games that my guests and I enjoy playing, to talk about big industry events, and to talk to the people who create these games. Today is, oh, it's, it's like Christmas. It's, uh, it, it's an event that occasionally happens, maybe once a year-ish, and it ticks all three of those boxes. We are going to talk about a game that we love. We're going to talk about a big industry event. And we're going to talk to one of the people who creates these games. I am beyond ecstatic to say that my favorite game designer of all time, hands down, no surprise, you've heard me say it before when he's been on previously, a man who needs no introduction and yet gets one anyway. If you've ever passed a Warhammer or Games Workshop store, and looked in and seen Warhammer 40,000 on anything or Warhammer whatever on it, there is someone who created that. And today we are going to talk about that journey with the man who created Warhammer. Our friend, Rick Priestley. Welcome back to Cast Eyes. Hi, Brad. It's uh, lovely to be here. And, uh, and thank you very much for the introduction. <laughs> Rick, I don't want to throw always. around legendary, but, and I know you hate it when I do this, but I, I've been doing a lot of reflecting about Warhammer as a whole and doing a little research because while I stepped onto the Games Workshop uh, game treadmill of joy, um, with Blood Bowl first edition with the cardboard models instead of miniatures and 40K Rogue Trader when it first came out with the hardback. That was my first introduction to Games Workshop. Now, obviously, we met years later, 1999, and have continued talking since then. But I am embarrassed to say that I didn't quite understand how much further back you went with Warhammer. I know we've talked in the past and I know that you started as a troll, but you and Brian, Brian Ansel, the late great who recently passed, um, had a relationship even before you were out of high school. And I know we talked a little bit about that in the past, but as we are minutes from the release of The Old World, which is the long-awaited return to Warhammer Fantasy Battle, I thought it would be a wonderful moment to go back in time and talk a little bit about how Warhammer came to be and the history of Warhammer Fantasy Battle. Now, of course, I'm sure we're going to hit other, other games along the way and other parts of your journey, but... We've talked a lot in the past about Warhammer 40,000, and if you are listening to this for the first time and you haven't heard those episodes, I highly recommend you go back. Rick, 
Shall we start with how you and Mr. Halliwell got together to create a little game called Reaper? Sure. Yeah. Richard Halliwell and I were at school together. We were school friends and um, we were both war gamers. And I think we really, we were kind of like best friends, war gamers and members of a little circle of gamers uh, at a time when quite frankly, wargaming wasn't in any way cool or uh, uh, sexy as it is today. Um, in fact, it's a little embarrassing. People used to accuse us of playing with toy soldiers quite a lot. Mm-hmm. But there you go. We weren't to be put off. And um, I think by the time we were in our late teens, we'd been wargaming for, for well, many years. I, I started when I was about 11. Um, as and, and Hal was already wargaming when I met him at about the same age. So when I say Hal, that's Richard Halliwell. So um, by the time we were in our late teens, we'd already been designing games, you know, because she just did in those days. And science fiction and fantasy wasn't a gaming thing. It was something that um, we, I think there was a natural interest started to develop in the early 70s. But there were no formal rules. And then in the mid 70s, a few people came out with rules, um, which in those days were mostly Ronioed and stapled together. You remember what a Ronio is? Like a little wet printer? Used a typewriter to make a a, 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 a kind of sh- a, a little wax sheet, and you ran that through a machine, put ink in, and it came out. And that's how that's how all like school um, little leaflets were done, and everything those days. Cheap, and they and it was purple. Yeah, usually it could be purple. It yeah. could be any color. It depends what ink you used. <laughs> if I, uh, when I was at college, um, I used to run the college magazine, and uh, we used a, a Ronio machine to, to produce that. So. Yeah, yeah. Up, I was up uh, many a late night running off the uh, copies of our, uh, our little college mag. Um, yeah, so, you know, we had some history, me and Hal, and um, I think in our late teens, and I must have been in the very last year of um, uh, what you'd call high school. It was just our uh, little grammar school. Um, Hal had already left. He left a year before me. Um and at that time, we were, we'd got a game together called, which we called Reaper, um, which was a fantasy war game. And as I say, we'd already been developing games for ourselves, but we really wanted to print one. We really wanted to see it published. And um, Brian Ansell had just started advertising Asgard miniatures in military modeling, which was the magazine of the day. There was nothing else, I don't think, that was significant um, for, uh, for war gamers. Uh, and um, we'd sent off for Asgard Minches, and we'd got some of the very early models that Brian had made. We had not met him. We didn't know that he was, you know, the man behind it all at the time, but we had a phone number, so we phoned him up and basically said, oi, we've got this uh, set of war games rules. Would you like to publish them? And because Brian was the sort of guy, um, he, he, he was very talented himself. He could write, he could sculpt, he certainly was incredibly creative he could also draw but he loved to get people around him who were creatives and he liked to make things happen so he's incredibly encouraging person and he's uh, consequently rather than saying no (laughs) i'm not interested go away he said oh that's really interesting why don't you i just perhaps i could do something for you why don't you come over and see me so we went over and saw him, and he lived in Arnold at the time. Arnold is um, a little town north of Nottingham. And uh, that was where Asgard Minches were based, in a little workshop. 
and Brian lived around the corner. So Hal and I went over to see him. Uh, Hal could drive. Hal learned to drive when he was 17, so he could always drive, which was quite cool in those days uh, um, and not usual. But um, we drove over and we took some toy soldiers and we demoed the little game uh, on his uh, on his floor, in fact. <laughs> and uh, he was suited. He was reasonably impressed. I don't think necessarily by the just by the rules of the game, but you know by the fact we'd got a setup, we got painted miniatures, and we were obviously crazily enthusiastic. Now, bear in mind, we'd be eighteen, I guess probably just turned 18, maybe even 17, but I think just turned 18. Um, and um, Brian would be about 22, possibly, at the time. He'd just, he, he, he went to college to do a maths degree, but he, he left and set up Ascot Adventures. So we were all fairly young. Brian put us in touch with um, uh, a, a shop in Nottingham, that he had done some work with. He, he already published a fanzine called Troll Crusher, which is a role-playing fanzine. And a fanzine is, as I've described, it's one of these little pamphlets that's all roneoed and used to arrive in the mail. Um, so he he already had some connections and he put us in touch, as I say, with uh, the chaps at the uh, Nottingham Model Soldier Shop uh, and they published the first edition of Reaper I did all the production work um, bar the illustration. So I, I, I used a typewriter to type everything up onto, uh, they were slightly bigger than A4 sheets, not quite A3, but they were, they were like 50% up sheets. Um, camera ready copy is to call it. Uh, and then Brian arranged for someone to do drawings and fill the, fill the spaces out. And that someone was Tony Ackland. It shows you, again, it's one mm -hmm. of Brian's connections. Mm -hmm. He's good at connecting things. Um, and uh, a mate of ours did the cover uh, and uh, it, it was published. It was um, it was actually what they call slide bound. So the in, it was individual pages which had a binder. So, you know, very, very amateurish in a way, but quite big. It was quite a big. In fact, I think when it was published, it was the longest set of Wargames rules in Britain that had ever been published. <laughs> uh, big, quite a chunky thing. Um, and, it, and it did reasonably well for us. But more importantly, it established that relationship. And because Brian had seen all our models and all the conversions I'd done, he then asked me if I was interested in painting for him. And I did a bit of painting for Asgard. And that went reasonably well. And he then said, well, you can obviously paint. Have you ever thought of sculpting? I said, no, not really. And so he said, well, I'll show you how. So Brian showed me how to make the, well, how he made figures at that time. Uh, and it was uh, quite a simple process. He originally used wax, but I think by the time he showed me, he was probably using milliput. And um, he gave me some dollies to work with. A dolly is a basic skeleton, and you put you use it for your, it establishes your basic anatomy, and you put the modelling material around it. So you build your figure up over that frame. Uh, and I did a few figures for him. Um, and if I, I did a few things for Asgard miniatures that were made. And then I went to college. And quite frankly, I discovered things other than toy soldiers when I was at college. It's <laughs> a thing you, I hear. As you do. You know? <laughs> you do. So I didn't do much for three years while I was doing my degree. 
I tried to keep in touch with Asgard, but what happened was that Brian left Asgard. So my contact was broken and he set up Citadel Miniatures with um, uh, Steve Jackson and Ian Livingston from Game, uh, Games Workshop. So I think he had a little bit of a period when he was working with tabletop games in Nottingham, making 15 millimeter figures uh, and uh, various bits and bobs. Uh, but it, but after that, he set up he set up um, Citadel Miniatures in Newark. Hal and I were from Lincoln. Hal had moved to Nottingham where he was uh, at college, but he'd, he'd moved into a house in Nottingham with his girlfriend at the time. And so we were all close. You know, this is not a big, yeah, I think Nottingham and Lincoln are about 30 miles apart, Newark's in between. So I was still living in Lincoln, but traveling to Newark every day to work when I, when I was working at uh, uh, Citadel in Newark. And I think because Brian was putting together Citadel Minches, he was just drawing people he knew who were enthusiastic, competent, who he felt would be uh, useful to him. And so he got Hal working for him, cutting molds. Hal was the sort of guy who didn't really like to take a regular job. So he'd do periods of regular work and then he would go off on his travels. He was a great traveler, was Hal. Um, and I think he, by the time I joined, Hal would, had already moved on and he was um, kind of doing, he was doing a bit of freelance work, mostly mold cutting. Uh, but some of my other friends were already working there, including um, a chap called Anthony Epworth, uh, otherwise known as Ep, mm -hmm. who was another one of my wargaming buddies. Uh, and a guy called Paul Elsie, who was uh, yeah, another one of my wargaming buddies who'd taken over the mold cutting role. Uh, and Brian kept phoning me up and saying, basically, do you want a job? And I was at the time, I was trying to make a living as a sculptor. I was making 15 millimeter figures for tabletop games. Now, only because this will come up later, I'm sure, you had just graduated university yep. with uh, a degree in archaeology and history. Yeah, archaeology. I went to do classics. Mm -hmm. And I found that I enjoyed the archaeology after my first year uh, so much, I kind of pivoted to archaeology uh, nice. and thus avoided having to learn Latin. <laughs> yes, that um, is a good life skill, I hear. <laughs> yeah, quite. In many ways, I regret it because I didn't enjoy the second and third year archaeology anywhere near as much as the first year. Mm. Uh, I certainly didn't enjoy standing in a hole in the ground in the pouring rain, sleeping in tents and crapping in fields. Mm -hmm. That was, uh, uh, I thought, well, yeah, this is no good. So the reason, the reason I ended up in the war games industry is really because I, I, I didn't, I was a really terrible archaeologist. And I, I people, for years, years, people used to say to me, how do you get to be, uh, how do you get to work in the war games industry? And I used to say, be crap at something else. All the people I knew that worked in the war games industry were failures in other respects. Mm -hmm. Brian Ansell dropped out of his degree. Uh, John Stallard, my friend John, our friend John, you know, John, mm -hmm. he failed his psychology degree twice. <laughs> I didn't know that. Oh, that's Wait. funny. Yeah, yeah. That's brilliant. He, he took a psychology degree and failed it. So he went to another college and took his uh, the degree again and failed it again. <laughs> so he was a, he, he never, so he was a failed psychologist. Jervis Johnson was a mortician. He, yeah, uh, he's got the voice what? for it, doesn't he? <laughs> Yeah, he was a mortician, and he gave that up to work for Game Centre in London. Wow, he's got he's got some good stories, has a uh, Jervis about you know because you know he used to go and have to collect 
people who died and all that sort of thing. And Jervis, if, if people don't know, Jervis is about six foot something. I'm mm -hmm. five foot. I'm five foot six. So everyone over, you know, five foot ten looks the same to me. All I see are two nostrils. So, so Jervis is one of those. You know, he's very, very tall, very gibbony, mm -hmm. very long arms, and a voice that's about two octaves below normal human speech, <laughs> like yes. something out of the Adams family. Uh, yeah, very appropriate that he should be a mortician, but he, he obviously didn't take to it. Um, and so on, you know. Um, yeah. Epp was uh, my mate Epp, who I've spoken of. He was a he was a civil servant, and uh, I don't think he enjoyed that very much. So you know. He, he gave that up to become a toy soldier person. Yeah. Hmm. So where was I? You, yes. So I yeah. failed as I wouldn't fail as an archaeologist, but I didn't really yeah. want to make it a career. I had done a little bit of archaeology post post my degree, uh, basically over the summer, uh, about just before I started doing the fifteen mil figures. Really. So I had one nice summer of digging at a place called Fiskerton, just outside Lincoln, uh, which uh, was quite a nice quite a nice dig. It was. Um, late Celtic riverside site and I got to find I got to uh, uh, we, we were pulling out a lot of spearheads and swords which were fantastic and I actually got to uncover something and they'd, they'd run a metal detector over it so we knew there was something there and we thought it was a spearhead I really wanted to find a spearhead and I, I took my trowel I've got my trowel in my right hand and I'm digging around this thing and I eventually exposed something and it looks like the hand, a handle of some sort. I think, oh, that's very strange. I managed to just gradually expose it. And what it looks like is the handle of the trowel I'm using. It looks exactly like the handle of the trowel that I have in my hand. So I'm thinking, somebody's taking the piss. They've buried a trowel. Swines. <laughs> and they did do that sort of thing. <laughs> it wasn't unknown. <laughs> I thought, oh, well, I better, and I carried on, I carried on. And what it was, was a file. So, oh. that, so it had a handle, just like the trowel, the, the handle of the trowel that it was, I was using. But it was a file, big, long, like, or a rasp, you know, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a, you know, genuine, about zero, you know, the, the first century AD, first century BC kind of thing. And it had been in the ground all that time, waiting for me to be confused. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it was a nice thing. Waterlogged site it was. So it preserved a lot of um, wood and um, bone material, which is why I found the handle. Mm. Normally something like that would have gone. Yeah, ex ex exciting stuff. So I had a bit of a background in archaeology and history and a love of that sort of thing. So that mm. did come in later. But Brian kept phoning me up. I was there sculpting toy soldiers, um, not making much of a living at it because it Basically, I had to make about three figures a day to make a living. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah, no. Three, three a day, would make, you would just about make a living at it. Um, or one cavalry figure. Uh, and uh, if you're doing 28, 25 millimeter figures, it would have been in those days, you could get away with one a day. But that was the rate in those days. Brian said, you can make a figure a day, you'll be able to make a living at it. Uh, and that was the standard. Later on in the 80s, I think it slowed down a bit. And now it's fabulously slow. When I was at workshop in my final days, which was still about 14 years ago, I had uh, a figure sculptor was making a figure in about five weeks. Wow. Yep. I know. Pathetic, really. 
slight slight difference in detail i'm guessing but uh size yeah yeah absolutely mm -hmm. very much so but it just shows the difference the, the hobby as it was in those days couldn't support that kind of time mm -hmm. you know you couldn't afford to pay a figure sculptor the five to work for five weeks or a month or even a week to make a figure mm -hmm. you, there weren't enough sales in it there wasn't enough profit yeah, anyway there I was, and uh, Brian kept phoning me up and saying, we've got lots of mail order. It's backlogged again, um, because he was doing it himself. Mm -hmm. He was basically doing the mail order in the mornings and trying to run the company in the afternoons. The company was doing well, so he was spending more time managing it, uh, and less time was available for mail order. So he phoned me up and asked me if I'd come in and do some freelance mail order box stuffing, which I did. And because I didn't really want to do it, because I had to get on and make the figures. Um, I'd come in, work, work reasonably hard and get the job done. And I wasn't one of those sort of people that went, oh, it's five o'clock, I'm off home. I, I, you know, get to five o'clock and I still had some mail order to do. I'd, go, I'd stay and finish it. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I was kind of a good doer, really. Um, and it never occurred to me to be anything else in those days. Um, so I think he kind of thought, well, this guy could do it. You know, if I employ Rick, he'll be... He'll sort it out. Mm -hmm. uh, so he kept offering me a job. I kept refusing. Um, and in the end, because uh, I was working on projects of my own, and in the end he said, look, why don't you come and I'll give you this much money. And it was more than I, way more than I was earning mm -hmm. make, making toy soldiers. And I'll tell you what, we'll publish that game that you've been working on. That game was called Rogue Trader. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I said, fine. It's a little enough. thing. Yeah, I said, okay. And I've got all these models that I've been designing for Road Trader, which at that time was a spaceship role-playing game. I know that sounds weird, but that's what that's it right. was. And I designed a range of spaceships to go with it. And Citadel bought those spaceships off me in anticipation of producing that game. So I said, okay, I'll take the job on the basis that we'll make Road Trader one day. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's how I got a job at Games Workshop. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I was uh, the mail order department. It was just me. Uh, 1982, this was. Uh, and I grew that business by basically filling the orders out, um, producing flyers, which we did on, I think we must have had a typewriter at the time. And Tony Ackland had joined as well. And Tony was um, doing the production work. So he was putting together these mail order flyers and doing illustrations for the um, for the figures. No photography in those days. Everything was hand-drawn. Uh, and I built that business by a simple process of filling the orders out sending things back making sure the flyers were included always being polite always sorting out any problems that we had quickly which mm -hmm. is always an issue with mail order you can't if somebody sends a complaint in you've sent me a miscast you swines you're evil i'll never order from you again you got back straight away i'm sorry we didn't mean to we don't <laughs> we don't deliberately try to send out miscasts here Here's a replacement. Oh, and here's another figure as well to make, make up for your, the inconvenience. Yeah. And we're terribly sorry. Oh, and here's our latest flyer. I assure you, if you order again, we'll do our very best. And people would always go, oh, that's all right. I'll, I'll order it again. And sometimes they'd go, 
this priest that he sends us out three figures if we complain. Let's complain. <laughs> so you have to be a bit wary of that. Mm -hmm. And make sure that when you send out so-and-so, Fred Smith's order, because Fred Smith gets an awful lot of miscast. Mm -hmm. Make sure you double-check his orders. So you can always write back and go, are you sure, Fred? Because I was very careful. Well, we'll believe you this time, but, you know. Yeah. Maybe we're next on, time. Yeah. We're, on, we're on to you, mate. You know, yeah. But in, but in a cheery way. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, uh, and, you know, anyway, I built the business up and uh, we eventually trained up a few other people and a few other people came along wanting to work for us. And we said, well, you can work in mail order. Rick will give you a job. So I, I gave that John Stellard fellow a job when he wrote in. Mm -hmm. uh, it was in it was in his um i think it was in his summer break vacation he was on he was obviously still at college failing his degree at some point and he wrote in and we offered him a summer job and he uh he did mail order for a uh, for a little bit obviously enjoyed it again because he then applied to do a full-time job and we took him on and he did take over from me for a little while doing mail order wasn't great at it the reason being that in the meantime, he'd had an accident with his um, foot, as you know. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. He had, he had, hot, he had like about three of his toes amputated on one foot. Yeah, that's right. After, after an accident term in a, he was doing another job in a, um, a warehouse and it was, mm -hmm. a, he, was, he was using a forklift truck. And he basically, the forklift truck skidded, slammed into a wall and he got his foot trapped in between the wall and the truck. That's how he lost his foot, which is why we call him Foot and a Half Stallard. <laughs> which is a good joke. <laughs> Sorry, John. Didn't mean to laugh at that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, you couldn't get around very fast. Yeah. And, and, and if you're really doing the mail order sort of grunt job, mm -hmm. you have to be quite quick on your feet. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, he didn't. He, so he got moved on to doing telesales because um, Brian Ansell said he had a posh voice, a BBC voice. So, so he did good at telesales. Whereas the rest of us are all like me, you know, from the East Midlands. Uh, some a bit more so. <laughs> and telesales is where I met him. So uh, he was yeah. very good at that and then yes. kept doing that for quite a while. Well, yes. he's charming, John. And, uh, you know, and, and very, very, uh, I mean, he looked lovely chap and a joy to speak to on the phone. So, you know, he, he did well at it, but uh, not so good at Maylord. But we put other people onto Maylord and eventually um, uh, I was able to step away from the Maylorder role, either managing it or organizing the flyers or whatever, and do what we always intended to do and which brian very much championed which was our own set of war games rules mm -hmm. which was warhammer um we I, i'd always say that warhammer was brian's idea but the idea of doing a fantasy war game wasn't exactly new but brian wanted it was it was brian's ambition to do it and the reason he wanted to do it is because he wanted something that would uh enable us to sell regiments of toy soldiers rather than individual figures for role-playing. And you have to remember role-playing was what was driving sales up until now. It was the or, era of Dungeons and Dragons. It was the era when Dungeons and Dragons was a craze. It was the mm -hmm. era when Dungeons and Dragons was um, just had gone from being a geeky little game, not a million miles away from the game that Richard Halliwell and I had written, Reaper. And we already were playing things a bit like Dungeons and Dragons. And when Dungeons and Dragons came out, 
which was in the mid to late 70s in Britain. We we almost thought, oh, they're stealing all, you know, how dare they? This is our thing. But they were ahead of us by well, you know, about five years, really. Mm-hmm. It's just that America and Britain were so disparate at the time. You have to remember in Britain at this time, you couldn't import things. You couldn't send money abroad. This is before the liberalization of uh, that kind of thing. You, you, the amount of money you could take abroad on holiday was limited. You know, it, it was a very different world. You couldn't subscribe to an American magazine easily. Oh, wow. You know, and you couldn't, and, the, you, and in America, you couldn't subscribe to a British magazine very easily in the same way. Um, so although there was a wargaming scene in America and Dungeons and Dragons had developed in um, uh, in Gary Gygax's little community, there was hardly any knowledge of it in Britain and certainly not me and how. In fact, there was a little bit of it had got into a fanzine, a wargaming fanzine, it was called a newsletter at the time, called Wargamers Newsletter, which Donald Featherston published. But Hal and I didn't subscribe to that. We thought it was really old fashioned because it was based on the Donald Featherston 1960s rules. Mm-hmm. Um, but some articles uh, about early D&D or early fantasy wargaming appeared in that magazine because Gary Gygax subscribed to it. And he um, uh, he, he actually contributed some pieces to it. It's in the context of ancient wargaming with a fantasy feel and then ancient wargaming in a Lord of the Rings environment. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. But Hal and I weren't aware of that. But anyway, that was the ambition of Brian to create our own set of fantasy wargaming rules, a bit like what Hal and Rick had done with Reaper. So he actually asked Hal to do it. And the reason is because I was working, I was already working for Citadel. So I didn't really have time. You know, mm-hmm. the, the time I was spending was doing the mail order flyers and the catalogs and the packaging and all that sort of thing. I was I was effectively the studio with Tony Ackland. And Tony Ackland was doing more of the production work, you know, the sticking and the gluing and the specking. Mm-hmm. And he was doing the illustration and the drawing. I was doing the words and helping Tony pull everything together. Um, and that was it. It was just me and me and Tony. Uh, so I didn't really have time to develop a game. And the idea of developing a game in work's time and being paid for it by the hour was inconceivable. No one did that. All the games that were published, all the war games rules, everything was basically done on an amateur basis, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes on a royalty basis. Uh, so Reaper had been done on a royalty basis and a lot of things that I'd published in between, which I, I me and Hal had published a few other things by then. Uh, and Brian had published um, a few things too, including a game called Laserburn that people might have heard of. Mm-hmm. And which we've talked about on the show in the past. Yeah. Um, and they were all done on a royalty basis. Uh, and uh, so so I couldn't do it effectively, but Hal was freelance and he was doing various little projects and he took it on. So what he did was Hal basically converted our Reaper system into a D6 driven system because Brian asked that the game be D6. That was one of his specs. So the reason why Warhammer was entirely D6, and remember this is an era when the D6 is now regarded as a little bit primitive. You've mm-hmm. got all these funny shaped dice with Dungeons and Dragons, which had come about because of Dungeons and Dragons. They didn't exist mm-hmm. before. 
and a lot of war games rules were using d10s or d100s as to say two d10s rolled together yeah there's polyhedral dice which had come out in the mid 70s and they were being used for a lot of war games serious war games mm -hmm. there was also something called an average dice and if you remember that i don't an average dice was used for a lot of historical war games because it gave an average result. So instead of being numbered one, two, three, four, five, six, it was numbered two, three, three, four, four, five. Oh, interesting. And that's an average dice. And the idea is it gives you a more average result or a more boring result, as you wish. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> no extremes here. We want nothing but the middle of the road. Yeah, exactly that. And... Um, it was used by the War Games Research Group for all their ancient rules, which a lot of people used for fantasy or as the basis for their own fantasy adaptions. And the idea was you had a factor and you rolled a plus, a dice for plus and a dice for minors. And if you rolled two ordinary dice, you could obviously get a swing of five plus mm -hmm. six minus one. Uh, and they used that for barbarians. And if you were regular troops, you rolled average dice, so you could still get a plus and a minus, but the maximum you could get would be plus or minus three. Ah, oh, got it. Yep. So it gave you an average result, hence average dice. Anyway, Brian hated these with passion and insisted we use ordinary D6 because folks had those in their Monopoly sets, you know. Mm-hmm. And he was dead right, as he often was on these things. Uh and not these funny polyhedral dice, what people can't get. Uh, and obviously he had a market in mind that was teenage, probably young teenage to mid-teenage, and then college students a bit as well. Uh, and that was fine because we'd all been wargamers at that age, so we understood what it was like. We knew that when you read a set of wargames rules and people used words like morale, you went, what is morale? We don't know, we're 12. And um, I remember reading something in a, in a, I think it was a Charles Grant book, where he talks about troops being hors de combat or horse de combat. It's French. Mm. But we look at this and go, what's that mean? You didn't have Google in those days. Exactly. Uh, and we'd often find that. You know, you'd find a word that was just, a, you know, any war gamer would recognize. <laughs> but if you're 12, you don't know. And I think we had a, a natural understanding of that. Um, and materials. I remember when I was making figures as a little kid, you know, I, and I was making plasticine conversions. And I would have been 11 or 12. And I was reading in a military modeling magazine that you used banana oil to set a plasticine. Because plasticine is very soft. Yeah. But you use banana oil to set it. And I had no idea what banana oil was. No one I knew knew what banana oil was. Do you know what banana? I might have said this before, actually. So it's something I'd... you have, and I still yeah. don't know what banana oil is. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but it was—it's actually cellulose dope. Cellulose dope is what you use for making model aircraft, and you put a, a fabric, uh, like a tissue, over a, fa uh, a frame. You then oh. use cellulose dope to harden that tissue. Yeah. Um, and and real airplanes in the First World War, you just say, use the same thing. So it's cellulose dope, and it smells of well, a little bit like bananas, but I would say it smelt more like a nail varnish. You know, it's got that kind of smell mm -hmm. to it. And the irony was, I actually had some cellulose dope because I used to make model airplanes out of wooden, you know, I used to make uh, control line model airplanes. Mm -hmm. I was bad at that as well. 
crashed the first time out, wrecked, broke my heart, having spent months building it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but anyway, I had some, but never knew that it was what I had. So I understood what it was like to be that kid. And not just a kid, you know, a you know, teenager and then student. Uh, and I think that that was useful because a lot of war games rules weren't written from a perspective of making things plain and obvious and explaining what you meant. They took so much for granted. They were written for people who were already war gamers. Yeah. And I think Brian and I understood that implicitly. Um, and that's why he spec that. You also spec that the game had to um, use all the models we made, which is why the Warhammer world evolved from a historical basis, because we already made some historical ranges. Most of those historical ranges were made during a short period when Brian had a bit of a tiff with Stephen Ian, left, and was replaced by um, Duncan McFarlane. Duncan McFarlane was the guy who uh, owned and edited War Games Illustrated magazine oh. lovely chap he died a, a couple of years ago mm. uh, lovely chap um uh and and uh you know a, a very very intelligent fellow but as a manager of a toy soldier company utterly useless because he just indulged all of his interests in historical periods uh, so the company was I wouldn't say going down the pan, but it was going down the pan. Mm -hmm. And Brian stepped back in and rescued it. And that's when he employed me, in fact. Um, so there are all these legacy historical figures, including quite a lot of medievals and so on, some Renaissance figures, Vikings. And, of course, some of these also cross over into fantasy, don't they? They do. Uh, we had a Dark Age Arab range, uh, which, hence, I put Arabians in. I mm -hmm. think we got some samurai or we just started making some so I you did say, i have them right okay yeah so in you know in they go mm -hmm. uh, there are a few things i didn't put in we were making some romans at the time uh, which i uh, which i've got a few still but we didn't i didn't stretch it to that i kept it vaguely in that sort of typical medieval uh, genre and, and i just kind of came up with a a basic european style world background you know it's a, a roughly a Roughly a parody of the uh, uh, of the, the, the of Europe and the Mediterranean, and, and to cite everything that we made in, basically because that's really where everything came from. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, and that was the beginnings of the Warhammer world, really. Um, Howell wrote the game and a set of rules. Um, he didn't really do a background. The first Warhammer, if you get the first edition, it doesn't really have a background. Um, there are a few mechanical things that Brian was very keen on that he talk to Hal and me about and we included but essentially Hal and I developed that game between us Hal had a core of little of friends in, in Nottingham and the very first Warhammer has got quite a lot of role-playing material in it in fact I mm -hmm. went back a few years ago because someone asked me about it and I'd forgotten and I and I said I don't know if, I can't really can't remember much about the role-playing stuff in it but um I'll have a look and I read I went back and reread it, and there's a lot more role-playing stuff than I recall. Hmm. There's quite a playable little role-playing game in there. Um, and the reason for that is that that was another of Brian's specs, that it had to be both a role-playing game and a war game. Because you, at the time, you couldn't sell a game that didn't have role-playing in the title. That's right. Warhammer was 
marketed as a role-playing game or initially and didn't it have a different name it was warhammer um i think it was um oh, judge i can't remember now it's it's a uh, the, uh, the game of mass combat fantasy battle uh it's, it's got role-playing it it it's, it's got role-playing in the title wasn't it, it up. <laughs> wasn't it called runehammer at one point oh that was just a uh our working title. Ah, working title. Okay. That was our work. But Hal and I had a working title of Runehammer. Um, uh, because by, by reference to um, Michael Moorcock's um, Runestaff series of uh, fantasy books and uh, the rune blades, the idea of uh, rune swords, which you get in Michael Moorcock's uh, uh, Elric books as well. Uh, it, it was kind of, we thought it was quite a cool name. Yeah. Uh, uh, but at the time, because Games Workshop were also selling a Chaosium game called RuneQuest, and I think we might have had the license to print it. We certainly did later. Uh, but we certainly had the license to make models for it. So we were making models for RuneQuest. And Brian felt that that name was too close. So mm -hmm. imagine you're on the phone doing telesales and you're trying to sell a game called RuneQuest and a game called Runehammer. You can see the problem. Mm -hmm. You can imagine, can't you? Oh, yeah. It's why, incidentally, later on, we've sold very little titillating pink via via the phone. <laughs> titillating pink being a color of paint that we sold. But mm -hmm. no, no teenage boy could bring themselves to say, I want some titillating pink. <laughs> it's very Funny story. I got my bottle from mail order. But anyway, uh, <laughs> talk about that another day. You, you, you steeled yourself to ask for it, did you? <laughs> I was a big boy in college. I was well. I want some titillating pink. I'm I would mad. like. I snuck in in the end of the order. I just, uh, uh, as you did. but not the not the total end. There was still something afterward to to quickly rush to. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Happy days. Well, so with this initial Warhammer game, it it came with a series of books, Forces of Fantasies, uh, Fantasy, and Ravening Hordes. Am I getting that right, or is that second edition? Oh, let me think. Uh, yeah, Forces of Fantasy was first edition, and mm -hmm. Ravening Hordes, I think, was second. I think so. I think Ravening Hordes was second. Um, somebody will no, no doubt correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, yeah. I, you know, it's a long time ago, and I don't necessarily remember these things. Sometimes you remember these things with perfect clarity, but are incorrect. <laughs> Interesting yes. thing, memory. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and I, uh, but so what you'll get is what I'm remembering on the moment. <laughs> Are you aware that those are the names of the army list books yes. for the old world? Yes. Yes. Okay. They've, they've rejuvenated those names. They've gone back and dragged them, un, 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 disinterred them where they'd been happily buried and mouldering for years. And they've yes. used them for the uh, two, two books. I can see why. Um, it's, it's, in many ways, it's quite a nice thing to uh, uh, have that back reference. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but um, yeah, no, no. Back in but back in the day when we were doing first edition, yeah, you, know, you, you know, we threw it out. It's really, really roughly done. Um, Hal developed that game with me and his mates so quickly. I mean, and then I took it in house and I did. I, I did. I added a lot and finished it. Mm -hmm. um, but it's really rough. The production is not great. Um, uh, the the my my standard of English in those days was pretty poor, I must admit. Uh, and I've, I got taken to task for it by um, the guys at Games Workshop, who who were 
almost professional editors and they were certainly very literate um, and they just took the piss out of some of my spelling and grammar um, sufficiently that I was rather than be annoyed about it I thought they have got a point <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, and I was a lot more diligent after that. So it was one of those life lessons, um, which is interesting, really, because you think that when I was at college, it would have been a thing. But actually, mm -hmm. I think it was an era when they didn't worry too much about grammar when we were at school or about spelling. They did pick you up on a bit, but they weren't really, really de determined about it. And um, so I'd grown up sloppy, I think. And uh, as I say, it was a bit of a bit of a cold awakening. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I became very, very diligent after that, to the extent of being pedantic. And I, in fact, there's a there's a quiz night on uh, in England, usually Monday night, when there are three quiz programs, and I'm I'm a, I love quiz programs, and I I watch these diligently, shout out the answers, and swear at the TV if the uh, the, the student university challenges a student student based. One. And the questions are pretty tough. Sometimes they're almost impossible. But if I can get one and the students can't, which happens quite a bit, I'm pleased to say, mm -hmm. this is a moment of triumph. Lindsay describes this as pedant night. Such <laughs> is anyway. Love it. Uh, so my my inner pedant is quite uh, quite developed these days. Um, in fact, when I used to when I used to um, employ people to work or start work on Warhammer in the mid 90s I'd get a sheet of paper when we we're doing interview and I'd push it over to someone and say I want you to write down the following three words uh, oh, and one of them would be maneuverability oh you're mean uh, well yes I know <laughs> well I can't remember what the other three were they were, they were, they were things that are commonly misspelled uh, and uh, you, you know it, it, if they could Get all three. I was usually they, they, that was good. They could write. It's as simple as that, really. Mm -hmm. Most people can't spell words like millennium. Often get spelled wrongly. It wasn't one of my three, but it was. Uh, it was one of them. Yep. Um, anyway, uh, I digress. Uh, the so uh, Warhammer First Edition is out in the world. People are now starting to play a game that is more army focused uh, war game on the tabletop rather yeah. than role playing game is it right. rank and flank at this point yeah pretty much is um you can play it with little um units in the style of let's say necromunda mordheim mm -hmm. but you can also rank up the figures and in fact what had been happening is the feedback we've been getting had been uh, i must bear in mind the feedback at this stage is anecdotal via the sales guys or people write in but the feedback that we're getting is that we love this battle game, not we love this role-playing game. Uh -huh. So I've been doing more and more things that were battle game oriented, including some revised rules for the rank and flank sort of thing. Uh, and, and basically doing the proper development work on the game, because as I say, the first one was very, very uh, much thrown out. So it was almost like um, a case of developing a game and then letting the market or letting the people uh, determine how to develop it mm -hmm. um so by the time we did second edition the role-playing stuff had really taken a back seat it had pretty much disappeared uh, and the second edition was effectively a, a a proper version of warhammer i think what happened was we would i think we might have reprinted the first edition once but and they'd all sold out really quickly 
and Brian basically said, let's not reprint it because he'd realized by then that we'd got a direction. There was um, a direction of travel, if you like, mm-hmm. a trajectory. And the vision of it being a tabletop mass combat game, rather than a half-assed kind of it's a role-playing, it's, you know, skirmishy war game, whatever. It was now there. And I think Brian saw that. We all saw it, really. But Brian particularly would have seen that and wanted to push on that. Uh, and consequently, he had us do the second edition. Uh, second edition, I don't recall how I had much to do with the game development, but he did, I think, provide a scenario for it. Yeah, he did. Um, yeah, it, I think that was the Magnificent Sven scenario. Um, yeah, I think it was, which is great. And was still semi-role-playing, actually, mm-hmm. uh, if I recall correctly. Um, but um, I think I kind of put the game together. Um, I don't remember Brian being involved in the rules per se, but I've no doubt that he would have played hosted games because he often did. Because bear in mind that most of us were now living in scroty flats or sh- house shares. We didn't really have war game spaces because you know you just don't when you're young and you're starting out. Mm-hmm. But Brian had a uh, massive house, which he'd bought just north of Eastwood at, uh, at a place called Linby. And it was a big barn conversion. And he had a big downstairs room. He didn't live in this room. He actually lived in what was a flat above it, which was also pretty big. But this room had a snooker table in it. Or Billy's. Yeah, big b- Billy's table. Mm-hmm. Big. And he put boards over this billiards table. And used it as a war games table. Uh, and we played games there. Uh, and he invited us over and we played games. We'd often do photography sessions there because it was such a lovely environment. And the, there was room to set up a camera, you know, a proper camera, uh, a you know, plate camera. Um, and it was... Um, so we, so I know we must have had war games with, around at Brian's at some point. Um, yeah. Although... Um, I thought, ironically, I remember the very first edition of Warhammer playing. Um, Brian was there, I think, playing around at my parents' house where I was, because I was still living at my parents' house when I first uh, went to work for Workshop. And I had a, my war game set up at the time was two dining room tables pushed together with a cloth over, which is a good size, you know, it's five by seven. And I remember playing um, uh, both. Um, that was, Hal might not have been there, but I was definitely playing with Tony Ackland because to this day he complains about how my wolf riders got round the flank and were totally unbeatable. <laughs> I love these, uh, the wargaming stories that get yeah. held on for to 20, this day, 30, all these years later. It's 1982, for goodness sake, and he hasn't forgiven me. <laughs> I love it. I might have had to tone down the wolf riders at that point. Um, anyway, second edition, we. Again, we pushed out. By that time, we'd employed some more staff. So, and we were working on different games and projects. So, you know, I was more um, writer. Was I running the studio at that time? I think I might have been nominally running the studio, but um, we'd got more people in. And um, I can't think who would be running it if it wasn't me. Yeah, I mean, Tony was the writer. We'd got Dave Andrews in. Yeah, yeah. We, I, I got Dave in to write, actually, originally. Um, as a war games developer, because we'd had a relationship with him and a, um, a mate of his, 
from a local war games club and they put on displays for us and um, painted stuff up and were obviously great enthusiasts and i got dave into write but what we discovered was he couldn't write this is probably what spurred me to do the uh, the maneuverability test in later years but he could draw so we, <laughs> we took him on and he did drawing and production uh, mostly he did write a bit mm -hmm. uh and we had a lady who did all the typesetting. We had a proper typesetting machine. Um, and we had, uh, we must have had production staff, but I don't recall. But it was a, no more than a, John Blanche, of course, was working for us by then. Mm -hmm. No more than about six people, including me. So it was still a fairly small affair. Um, and we produced it. Uh, uh, we produced it. We used the same technologies for the first one, so it's still actually actually it wasn't a typeset. It was done on a on a uh, on a typewriter, uh, a word processor, strictly speaking, mm -hmm. uh, which was the last version of Warhammer we did on that. Um, uh, yeah, and it did really well. Um, and again, we published some supplements for it, including I think Ravening Hordes. Hmm. Yeah. I think Ravening Hordes was done for that. Uh, you can tell because the first edition of Warhammer had a letter for toughness. So That's A, right. B, C, D, E. Whereas the second edition, I think we'd realized the folly of that and gone to a, a number. I think the reason we did it as a letter, or uh, was or Hal, Hal did it as a letter, was to just distinguish it from strength. So you, if you went 4B, you knew it was something that was very hitty, but not very strong uh, not very toughy oh, but, you know, but in practice it didn't really amount to anything you, you people didn't necessarily relate to the game that way so we just changed it to a number it made it easier to manipulate mm -hmm. um and bonus and everything yeah so um we did that uh, uh it was very successful um i think at that time gary chalk did a supplement for it i'd done it supplement called terror of the lich master i don't recall if that was for first or second might have been second uh, that was redone later oh it's redone many times and it's become okay. an established character in the warhammer mythos because uh, i had that but yeah. i didn't pick that up i my first edition was the hardback third so oh, okay yeah yeah yeah, yeah. no it was it, yeah it was redone and uh, he became a character in the warhammer mythos from a little bit of, you know, originally when I wrote it, it wasn't firmly set in the Warhammer world. It was just one of those little capsular worlds that Hal or I would create to do a scenario or a story mm -hmm. that gelled into the Warhammer world. Um, and some of those characters from that world, like Grom, the Porch of Misty Mountain, mm -hmm. uh, and Heinrich Kemmler, the Terror, the Lich Master, um, have, have become pieces of uh, IP that exist to this day, as far as I know. That's right. Uh, yeah. But um, I say as far as I know, you have to bear in mind, I left Games Workshop 14 years ago. <laughs> See, it's amazing to think that people have been born, grown up and played Warhammer <laughs> since I left. You know, it, it's not not something I'm necessarily very close to anymore. Um, yeah. yeah. Anyway, we did all that. There's a kid in my class who plays Warhammer who yeah. is who's 11. So, oh, yeah, they exist. I assure you. I've heard you say that the Warhammer earlier editions were more generic settings um, because obviously the Warhammer world wasn't as fleshed out yet. But as you were developing the Warhammer roleplay system, you actually fleshed out quite a lot 
adding dimensions because all of a sudden people needed to be able to interact in this world and understand how it worked um, more intimately than yeah. previously. Also, I'd imagine with the introduction of the original novels that were going out, there were all those wonderful Drakenfells, God, what is Zardog? Um, Beast yeah, and Velvet. Wolf, all wolf the, Riders. Uh, yeah, Wolf Riders. Great. Yeah. Um, uh, mm -hmm. Drakenfells is the uh, fantastic book, isn't it? Beast in Velvet. Beast in Velvet. That's fantastic too. Yeah. Anyway, anyway um, the uh, that was a bit later, I think. I don't think the books came out until we'd done role play. What, what was happening? I, I was developing role play, um, and it must have been was it after the third edition or or before? Mm, that's an interesting question. When was third edition? Third edition was nineteen eighty-seven, I think. I think it, it. No, that's not wrong. It must have been before that. I think we did third edition first. When I did a a, a lot more back, I I, I kind of worked out the background in a bit more detail for third, and I developed the idea of the realms of chaos being polar gates, which mm -hmm. I just kind of I don't know where I got it from exactly. People often say, "Well, he stole this idea from this, or he took that idea from that." And I'm thinking, well, actually, none of the ideas in Warhammer, or 40k for that matter, are directly taken from anything. None mm. of them are ideas that were stolen. They are all ideas that were inspired by um, reading other science fiction and perhaps by other people's take on science fiction. But the inspirations were often multiple and quite loose. And the idea of chaos certainly came from Michael Moorcock. That's to say, the world in flux, where magic changes the actual physical locality the the ground becomes changed having said that you get quite a bit of that in lord dunsany in mm -hmm. uh, uh, his fantasy um time and the gods this kind of thing which is all published at the beginning of the 20th century i'm a great lord dunsany fan as well actually i didn't read a lot of it until later and then i recognized where some of the ideas i'd got had originally sprung from <laughs> Mm -hmm. rather from the people who had taken those ideas and themselves developed them. So, you know, these things have a long uh, history. Uh, and then you see them on TV, often in, in like um, uh, Doctor Who or in Star Trek or in whatever. You know, they, 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 the ideas come up again and again and again. Um, so the idea of the chaos polar gates was something that I introduced. Um but the idea of the flux of chaos as it, it, it kind of threatening the world just seemed to replicate that um, element in Michael Moorcock where, where the, as chaos becomes more powerful, it takes over the, and remakes the world. Everything changes and becomes like almost mutant, mutated. Um, and that seemed a very useful idea. Brian was very much a fan of that kind of chaos idea and the idea of things mutating and changing. And he He'd written a manuscript for the first edition of Warhammer called Realm of Chaos. He'd, he'd handwritten it, so it was a series of notes more than anything else. He'd handwritten it on sheets, single sheets of A4 paper with a green felt pen. So I had this massive sheet, this massive sheath of like, reams of paper with quite large handwriting or notes, notes, which I had to type up, which I typed up and often elaborate. Mm -hmm. But that included 
the basic descriptions for a game, which was a Chaos Warband game, not unlike Mordheim mm. in concept. You know, it's a skirmish war game. So think of it as a sort of Mordheim, but with Chaos Warbands. And a Chaos Warband is a champion of Chaos, plus all his followers. And his followers could be human, they could be any, it could be goblins, it could be orcs, they could be anything. One of the things Brian loved was random charts. Mm -hmm. So your Chaos Champion, who you randomly determined in the style of a role-playing game, would have random followers determined in the style of a role-playing game, who would have random attributes in the style of a role and so on and so forth. Everything's random. And you, you built these up with experience points. He had that concept. So the idea of Chaos Warriors being the champions of Chaos. That, that idea was very much Brian's. Beastmen were one of the things you could have, and he was very keen on beastmen. And he had the four gods, and he named the four gods, Nurgle, Zinch, Slanesh, and Korn. And if I remember right, John Blanche drew a four-piece picture, which got used again and again. I really loved it, which was the pictures of the gods. In a sort of semi, almost like an iconic setting. So are these really the gods, or are they a picture of the gods that someone's drawn? You know? Mm -hmm. uh, and they established what those gods looked like. And then Brian created a demon set for each of the gods. And that would be a lesser demon, you know, a demon hound, a greater demon, and a, something else. Well, I forget what it was, but there was four demon types for each god, mm -hmm. which he described. And he did all of those. And a beastman. Every chaos god had its own beastman type which was a standard Beastman with a fixed mutation. And then it had a random mutation on top of all that, obviously. <laughs> obviously, yeah. But as Beastman of Zinch would look like this in archetypal form, but then have lots of potential muta mutations. You're not going to get those eye stalks and bird feet without rolling on that chart, Rick. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, the, that chart, its original form was Brian just listed out all these chaos mutations and their basic what he thought they might do there was no actual putting it into numbers i had to do that well there were so many and every day i was working on this damn chart on my word processor naught to three um you know and they're all alphabetical order of course um naught to three might be i don't know something beginning with a uh, androgynous appearance and then all the way up to the last thing zoological randomness you know the Z. Not to three, not to three, not to three. And Brian would come in and he'd go, I thought of another 10. Here you are. And he'd give me another 10, a sheath of paper. And I'd have to fit them in in alphabetical order. And this is not a day when this happens automatically. This is, you might have got something like a typewriter in front of me. Mm -hmm. So I've got to redo all these charts. And I've got, a, by now, it's a D1000 chart. You know, it's that, there's that many. There are hundreds of these mutations. And me and Tony Ackland are coming up with new ones ourselves. Because we think of ideas all the time. It'd be really funny if we did this. Mm -hmm. How about that? Oh, that's really great. Um, and Brian would often come up with ones that were quite funny, like startling noise. You know, like the creature has just got enormous, enormous random fart yes. all the time. Whenever it's talking, every sort of every four or five words, it just just goes, <laughs> you know, or a squawk, you know, whack, something like this. He'd be quite. He was quite. They were all quite funny and not not game related necessarily. They were just world because mm -hmm. he was creating a world based around this idea of chaos warbands, and they were just the background was the chaos wastes. 
well, what are the chaos wastes? Well, it's the realm of chaos, so it could be anything you like. Yeah. <laughs> but, but the concept was really, it was a wasteland that they were roaming over and fighting over for the glory of their god. And that as you progressed in the uh, eyes of your god, your god would reward you. Now, gods are fickle. So the chaos rewards that Brian came up with were a series of um, things that were either positive or very negative. You know, the god has rewarded you with a hunchback. There you go. Yeah. Oh, thanks, God. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, they could be curses. And often what happened would be you would get mutations. Mutations would turn you into something like a dribbly be a gribbly beast. And if your champion turned into a gribbly beast before it could turn into a demon, which is the other option at the end of the line, you were basically you became a chaos spawn, mindless mm -hmm. spawn, and then you would run with the chaos packs. Or you could create a new character, and the old character, who's now just a ghibli monster with more tentacles than anything else, would That's become right. one of your friends. One That's of right. Friends. All that was Brian. It was in his original Realm of Chaos manuscript, which I typed up, rationalized, created the charts for. But all the ideas were Brian. Those concepts came over into Warhammer the Battle Game. Yeah. So you still have the Chaos uh beast men you still have the um uh, all the gods all, um, and the concept of mutations but making it all working in battle game was quite tricky but if it's chaos it would have derived from that original manuscript that manuscript was never published the it might have been uh, uh i think my my pasted up version stuck around for a long time because it was done for warhammer one and we'd already moved on by the time like if, I, if we stopped work on it to do Warhammer 2, that was probably handed over to whoever then got the job of writing up Slaves to Darkness. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it, it did, it did, there was, there was obviously a, a lineage there and Brian would have then added more and he would have had a relationship with the people that wrote Slaves to Darkness. By that time, I was, um, I, 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 because I'd worked on the Realm of Chaos and I had other things to do. And I knew what working with Brian was like. <laughs> Both for joy and frustration at the same time. Mm -hmm. I, I was kind of keen not to do it. So I, I, I too, I, I'd love to, but I'm so busy doing X, Y, Z, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, so but others, others uh, actually did Slaves of Darkness. I had very little to do with it. Uh, yeah, you but, were you were busy playing uh, a little something that eventually became actual Rogue Trader, Rogue Trader on yeah. John Stallard's floor. Uh, yeah, yeah. well, our, our floor, because me and John Stallard and my mate Epp, who I've spoken of recently, we um, we uh, basically rented a house. That's um, right. That gives you pause for thought. You know me and John, <laughs> and our mate Epp is not a million miles away in terms of his lifestyle. Would you rent us a house? Bear in mind we're in our mid-20s. And single blokes. And what have you rented as your house, your family mm. house? Which is <laughs> no, Rick. I love you guys, but I would not rent you my house in your twenties. No, I've seen yeah. the pictures in White Dwarf. Yeah, it had. Um, it was quite. Oh, it was garishly decorated. The people who owned it were. Um, God bless them. They were lovely. They were Jamaican Christians, and the. They had they left us everything, including all the decorations on the wall, which included um, some religious icons and all sorts of things. Uh, it, it was quite weird in a way. The bathroom was tiled with mirrors, so as you had a shower or a bath, you were looking at yourself <laughs> multiply, which was a bit weird. 
Um, yeah. Uh, the central heating didn't work, but the landlord wouldn't re he, he yeah. never wouldn't fix it. The washing machine didn't work, and the, the something else didn't work as well. What was it? The fridge? There's something vital didn't work. None, none of it ever got fixed. In the winter, it was freezing. The ceilings were all polystyrene tiles, i.e., the worst fire hazard known to man. Yeah, I was going to say that doesn't sound safe. And we, on occasionally, um, after drink had been taken. John was in the sealed mort, so we had muskets. So we'd occasionally we'd occasionally load the muskets up with gunpowder, which I'm sure we weren't supposed to have, and um, blast away at the curtains. <laughs> we didn't put any missile in, just just the, yeah. but, you know the, the actual air blast out of the musket would uh, <laughs> make the curtains jump like crazy. You know, so it's quite good fun. But what the neighbours thought of all this, I don't know. <laughs> I definitely wouldn't rent you my house, Rick. Yes, a one party. Uh, after uh, uh, oh yeah, the parties were a thing. All the floor got very sticky. Um, but anyway, the at one party the, we had an improvised pike drill using halberds and uh, uh, put holes in the ceiling when they were ported. Remember <laughs> 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 that? Yeah. Anyway, that was us back then. Yeah. Times have I'm, I'm leaving stories about uh, going to mail order parties in Baltimore in the 90s at the door right about uh, here. And, it's probably uh, best. Yeah, but we're gonna we'll, we'll move on. You might have to edit that. Brad. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, it's a long time ago. No one knows. Well, Rick, so we're getting to third ed time because we're talking about the lost and the damned. So there was the mm. sort of the holy four tomes. We had Rogue Trader. We had Warhammer Fantasy Third Edition. We had The Lost and the Damned, and we had Slaves um, of Darkness. So, yep. with all four of those, and I guess you could put um, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, which came out in '86. I looked uh, it up. Was um, okay, yeah, yeah. And Third Edition Fantasy came out in '87, which was when Rogue Trader came out. Yeah, yeah. Rogue Trader came out. In and I'm pretty sure the other Chaos Hardback books came short and sharp beyond that. But yeah. that was the last edition that we did that wasn't a box. Yeah. Um, what had happened is we'd had some success with Hardback books with re reprinting Chaosium stuff. Mm. Um, when Brian bought the company outright, which is somewhat before then, I think, when Brian bought the company outright, he had this plan to expand Games Workshop by doing um, lots of licensing deals with West End, for example, and with mm -hmm. Chaosium. Um, we were still doing lots of board games, hence West End, as well as role-playing games, hence Chaosium, role-playing mm -hmm. games being RuneQuest, and, and the one that we did with uh, the Michael Moorcock thing, which I can never remember the name of, but people will no doubt remind me. Might have been Elric and Mel and Bernie, but whatever. Um, you know, we were doing all that, uh, and so we'd learned how to do hardback books. We hadn't learned very well because sometimes they'd fall apart, but that was because they were <laughs> just just the way. Bear in mind, we, we're not—we were sending them away to a printer and a binder. You know, it's not as if we were physically doing them ourselves. We, yeah. We're having—we we were developing a relationship with a printer and a binder and learning how to do the production work for them. So all that. So, so at the time. And D and D had gone to a D and D had gone to uh, books as well, so books were let's say in the air. They were trendy. This was the way that grown up people now did product. 
that's why we went to a hardback book for Warhammer 3 and for role-playing. People expected role-playing books to be in that format. Mm -hmm. Role-play, role I'd started the original one when we were at the old studio in Eastwood. So um, I, I'd done quite a lot of the text, including all of the background text, most of the work on the game's development. Hal had done a lot out of house. He'd done the game's core games development out of house, I think. No, I'd done it. I did the core games development. Hal did the career system, which mm. was a major part of it. So we'd been working on it together. He did the career system and he couldn't quite get it to work. So I took it in-house and I eventually bashed it into shape and got it to work. So After you're the one I have to blame for having to have my rat catcher character for yeah. months upon months as it tried to become an, an assassin unsuccessfully. Lucky you, rat catcher. That's a step up. I'll tell you what, there were originally a lot more careers, mm -hmm. but we had to make models for them all. And, ah. according, and according to Tony Ackland, who remembers this far better than me, uh, we had to cut out a lot of the, the the careers because Brian said you can't have that many models. I say Brian said. He would have been the person that told us. But the practicality of it was that we couldn't make all the models for all the careers. So Brian would have said, I'm sorry, we can't have them. We've got to cut some out. So we had to cut loads out. And the reason Tony remembers it is because he'd all drawn, he'd drawn them up. He'd drawn every career. Oh, that's right. So he had to basically not use all these drawings so he had a, and again it was my fault this is like the wolf riders story all over again it was my fault that uh, i'd done all these careers and we couldn't use them so he had a right <laughs> and to this day <laughs> he still remembers that hmm. in fact this illustration for the scribe character is me if you look at the scribe character oh, illustration it's yeah. me with a rank Xerox word processor. And it says the word rank Xerox is along the side of the lectern that I'm writing on. <laughs> That's funny. I didn't realize that. I'm going to have to go look. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we oh. based a lot on, the, on, on, on people, but uh, it's a nice picture too. If I, I, found I, I, I borrowed it and used it on my um, rickpriestley.com site as a, as a header picture. Yep. Yeah. That's um, right. Hmm. As we're going from first ed, I mean, obviously you've talked about some of the big changes going to second edition, third edition with Warhammer armies and with the introduction of plastic models for the first time, we're really seeing a larger rank and flank game. At least that was my impression at the time. And then with the introduction of fourth, where we saw our first big box set, where it was high elves and Orcs and goblins. Am yeah, I getting that right? It was high elves and goblins, wasn't it? Yeah. Because you've got a goblin spearman and a goblin archer. That's right. It was a high elf spearman and a high elf archer, and then lots of standees for the rest for uh, for a uh, fourth. The difference is that when we were doing third edition, um, and Brian had very much, he, he'd realized we were onto a good thing, and he, I think the feeling was that we wanted the game to be more complicated, and that was definitely a steer from Brian. Mm -hmm. um, and we'd also employed a lot more people, including lots of gamers who'd come in from TSR. And that's why we were suddenly able to do a lot more stuff very quickly. Right. The TSR team took over the role-play development. So they finished it off and then did all the supplementary material. And to be fair, the reason why role-play is so revered to this day 
isn't the original book, which was largely my work, uh, me and Hal, mm -hmm. um, finished off by that team. But to be honest, I, I think it was pretty much a finished manuscript by the time they got it. The supplements were all done by the TSR, ex-TSR team and Graham Davis, who were, and, and they were fantastic creative yeah. role players. And the reason it's so revered to this day is not because of the work I did, it's because of the work they did, okay. in my opinion. Uh, but nonetheless, I did a lot of the work that built the background. So that those core background descriptions of what the empire's like, what the cities are like, what Bretonia's like, and so on and so forth, they, they, they were all done by me. And I carried that over into third edition Warhammer, if I remember right. These things were all in my head at the time. So I carried it over into third edition Warhammer. Again, that team included Jim Bamborough, who was a wargamer, did a lot of the work on that third edition. So the third edition was actually a team effort. I did do the lead design, but nonetheless, a lot of it was the detailing work might have been uh, done by other people. But Brian wanted it to be more complicated, and it was more complicated with a lot more fiddly detail. So a lot more modifiers for weapons, a lot more modifiers for situations and circumstances, and a quite complex system for resolving combat, resolution, uh, resolving combat, which involved a lot of shuffling to and fro. Now, my feelings were um, at the time that this was a little bit of a paper exercise. Sure, we played, but we all knew how to play Warhammer. And you know, I was talking about originally when we did all these products, we were bearing in mind we were also once children. We were once 12 year olds, 11 year olds, 14 year olds, and we were once 16 year olds and eight. And so I was writing for an audience where I, I'd occasionally stop and write, explain what I was doing. Whereas war, died in the wall, war gamers don't need that, tend to think it's blurby. And by the time we did third edition, I think we'd fallen a little bit into that trap. And we were writing things that were just complex for its own sake. And I, although I played a lot of third edition, as I say, I was already experienced. I knew I had to play Warhammer, so essentially it wasn't a problem for me. And third edition is much loved because it's got the highest production values of any Warhammer we'd done up to that point and arguably since uh, in my time. Mm -hmm. beautifully produced book lovely photographs really inspiring uh, a massive section i had to paint which is which, which contrary to what i've just said is great for beginners it is so it was, yeah i think it's just the game itself that's a bit a challenge but it was inspiring and i think because it was inspiring people played it even if the version they were playing was perhaps not literally as writ it's got a scenario, which was by Hal again. I think by now, I can't think if Hal was working for us that time. I don't think he was. I think it was another case of Hal being commissioned to do it, although he did join later on. Hal was joining and rejoining and going off to Africa and uh, getting lost in the Middle East and all sorts of things throughout this period. He was able to bring a certain cosmopolitan quality to Warhammer, which was a good um, contrast to my, um, what would you say, parochial approach. So uh, my my endless jokes would be about living in Lincoln. It's a small Midlands town in the nineteen in the, the East Mid, uh, uh, in, in Britain. Mm -hmm. You know, my my jokes would be based upon events of the nineteen seventies and political uh, uh, political uh, doings of the of the time. Was how would bring, a, as I say, the touch of the exotic to his work. Mm -hmm. uh, 
So third edition was that. It was very, very complex. By the time we came to doing fourth, with there being a massive shift in Games Workshop because Brian had sold the company. So Brian never wanted to do something like army books. He always wanted, he preferred to do the, all the, uh, I think, what was it called? It wasn't Ravening Hordes. It was the Warhammer Armies. Warhammer Armies. Yeah, he'd had, he, that was for the, and how, uh, how, mm -hmm. I'm getting the man wrong now. Brian had asked us to do Warhammer Armies and he'd given Nigel the job of doing it. Nigel Stillman, who was, mm -hmm. I think it was his first job for us. And Nigel and I put that together, essentially. It might have had some contributions from other people because it's army lists. Yeah. And army lists often do, but I think essentially me and Nigel did it. And Brian didn't like the idea of doing individual army books. I think he felt that they would be not sufficient to the background. Brian was more interested in having things that were deep, involved, semi-role playing, lots of character, but which deepened the background, but which never, ever filled it. So it could always be deep. So you, that project could always be made even more complicated and even more involved. If you think about the Orcs project that he did for 40K, which had three mm -hmm. volumes of Orcs books, they were another, that, that was Brian. You There's a those? lot of random tables in there. Yeah. And three different formats for the books because we never quite could, kept going change. Loads and loads of great stuff, but boy, did it nearly break Nigel. Actually, it did break Nigel. He he, he was in tears doing that, I remember. Um, because Brian would constantly change his mind and add new stuff. So just as you'd finish something, something else would appear. And by then, Brian was using a dictaphone. So he didn't even have the reams of paper with the green felt pen. You just had a dictaphone message, uh, which had been typed up, to be fair, by, by Brian's uh, secretary. But they would be has spoken. So sometimes they'd be rambling. You think I ramble. You know, they would be quite rambling and discursive. And occasionally Brian would have used a word, because he was a very intelligent and, 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 and educated man. He would have used a word that the typist, who was a lady from Eastwood, wouldn't have understood. And she'd typed something that approximated to the word. <laughs> like Renaissance might have come across as, oh, oh Renaissance or something. Uh, love it uh and which you then had to read either decipher or try and find out but you know nearly broke no poor old nigel and in fact i did the last one uh, so um that was how brian did things the third edition was in that spirit and that makes it what it what's good about third edition is all of those things yeah what we didn't wasn't so good about third edition was the actual gameplay which was just ferociously complex by the time Tom Kirby engineered the management buyout, of which I was a part. Mm -hmm. um, the sales of Warhammer Fantasy Battles were pitiful. It had—I think people don't quite realise anymore that it had become almost like a non-product. Forty K was going through the roof, mm -hmm. and we were selling Forty K almost exclusively in terms of war games. No matter what, how loved it was, how beloved it was, we weren't selling any Warhammer. The buyout meant that Brian was no longer part of the company. 
uh, and basically wasn't running it, we could still, he had a, he had an arrangement where we could still phone him up and talk to him and he would phone us up and talk to us and he got copies of all the miniatures and he'd come back and he'd critique us. So, you know, he was basically working as a consultant, which was really useful. So we had that, we could still maintain that relationship, but Tom together with his financial, um, uh, director, who was a new guy, um, Brian's financial director or partner was part of the, he sold at the same time as Brian. So Tom, Chris Prentice, his new guy, mm. me and John Stellard bought Games of the Shot. Now that sounds as if I was some sort of big shot and the same with John. I think what we bought was, I think, well, I say bought, we had an option, a share option for what was then um, 1% of the company each which by the time you exercised it, because you have to buy the shares and then you have to uh, pay the tax, was one third of 1% of Games Workshop. So really the owner of Games Workshop was Tom Kirby. Tom Kirby. It had yeah. been engineered as a management buyout, but it was only done in a token fashion for me and John Stallard. I have to say, if I still owned those shares, I would be a multimillionaire. Yeah. Oh. I have to say I don't, but... <laughs> Yeah. Well, there's a few years in there where uh, at one time they'd gone up to five or six pounds. And I thought, wow, now's the time to get out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, happy days. But um, we were, more importantly, we'd become the guys that were running the company. The yeah. executive of Games Workshop was now Tom, who had got skin in the game big time. Effectively, he owed the people that he'd borrowed money from about 10 million pounds. A bit more than that, I think. That was the value of the company at the time. Mm -hmm. um, so he'd uh, he, he'd basically borrowed the money to finance the buyout. So the venture capitalists really were our owners. Um, and um, as a consequence, we had to build the business. Me and Stallard, well, we were suddenly executives, so we had we were being paid a lot more, which we, for which we were very grateful. And, you know, we, we had an opportunity to make money, real money out of this, as well mm -hmm. as, to, and in many ways, this is more important, as well as to drive Games Workshop. And I think John had this vision of what sales could be. I had a vision of what the product could be. And Tom had a vision of what the company as a whole could be. And that vision collectively, because, you know, we, we, we together, we'd be in executive meetings, we'd talk about stuff and, we had a again it created a new trajectory for a trajectory for the business whereas brian had got one goal in mind and, and brian didn't want to grow the business because he'd already got it to a stage where he owned it and it was generating profit the profit was direct income for brian he didn't want to jeopardize the company by trying to invest that money and grow it because why would you uh, we didn't have a foreign language product because that was a definite decision. We weren't interested in doing foreign language product because why would you want the complexity and the hassle and the cost? Now, Tom is not in the same position. All the profit the company is making is going to the venture capitalists, mm -hmm. not directly to us. So he has to grow the business to the point where the profit is built up to a level where actually we can pay off the debt and 
the profit then becomes Games Workshop's profit, not the venture capitalist profit. So you can see that the, <laughs> the motivation to grow the business was massive. Yeah. I'd all, by now, Warhammer, as I say, was, was in the doldrums. But we'd already done a game called Space Marine. Space Marine was a big box game with uh, small epic scale figures mm-hmm. and quite a bit of card content. Now, it, it was done on the basis of a um, uh, 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 of doing a big robot game, I think, the original Space Marine. Um, am I thinking of Titanicus? It was done on the basis of this. And yeah. I had Space Marine because that was where you introduced the Horus Heresy. Because yeah. you had one sprue and you were you were like, well, we can print it in two colors and then there's two different sides in this box. So we've used the Horus Heresy, which was a, a flip, uh, a piece of color text I wrote that appeared in chapter approved, I think. That's right. About the Horus Heresy, which is just a filler. You know, we had a hole in the page and I had to fill it and I just, I just banged that piece of text out about the Horus Heresy. Uh, and it's really just a parody of the fall of Satan, as described yep. in um, Milton's Paradise Lost. It's nothing right. more than that. Uh, so I was able to, you know, just, just <laughs> right, right, we've got it. We need to go to print, fill this space. <laughs> there you go, Horus Heresy. So of these things, giants are born. Um, so we had that big box game established, not necessarily as a version of Warhammer or 40K, but simply as a way of doing um, big box games, games in boxes, because we've been doing boxes for game, for people like, um, for games that have become from people like um, Greg Kostiakin and West End Games and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So it started as a board game concept more than anything, not using a board literally, but, you know, and then, we thought, well, why don't we do Space Marine in that context? I think Brian had still been at the company when I'd been developing that game because Jervis had done it, and Brian was concerned that Jervis had, let's say, he'd got his average dice out and he'd done something that was not entirely characterful. Well, Brian's thing was character. Character, mm-hmm. randomness, quality, you know, things that was interesting, got narrative, drew you in. You know, All those things are very Brian. The thing that is not Brian is... Um, this is a balanced game. This is a tournament yeah. system for balanced play. Brian hated that. Hated that. He hated those kind. In fact, to be honest, he hated those kind of gamers who he would refer to as beardy gits. <laughs> Not to their faces. <laughs> but nonetheless, that's where that phrase comes from. Um, and um, Jervis is very much a board game player, and he liked the idea of things being... He's driven by balance to some extent. This is a yeah. balanced game because it's a game. Why wouldn't it be balanced? Answer, yeah. because it's a huge narrative uh, piece of theatre that is a window into a world and a whole world where people have real lives and real relationships with real things. And the whole war game merely is a tiny aspect of that, a little, little window and part of that world. That's where Brian would have come from. And to be honest, it's where I generally came from with what I did. <laughs> Inspired by Brian. There you go. Um, so when we did the fourth version, that's the context. We've got to make something that works. And the new trajectory. Why can't I say the word trajectory? It's terrible. <laughs> the new trajectory uh, for a, a workshop is now going to be 
we're going to build up plastics because we know we make lots of money out of plastics. So we're going to develop plastics. Now, we'd already made a start. We already employed a man from X Matchbooks called uh, John Thornthwaite, who was our, in charge of the plastics. We'd already done various t- plastics under Brian's um, uh, sort of, uh, aegis. Mm-hmm. And with some success, uh, and we'd made plastics for 40K in particular and started doing kits, but I decided we were going to really push on that. I, the vision was of a games workshop that, of a citadel that wasn't a metal toy soldier company, but was a plastic toy soldier company. Which eventually happened. Yep. Not it really, it took a long time. And I think the people at the top, not me, because I, I had a good relationship with all the engineers as well as the sculptors and the pros. I was very good at process. I, if I may say so, I understood how the process worked. John Stallard, Tom, the guys who were, especially Chris Prentice, who was our finance guy, they didn't understand how the process worked or didn't want to understand how the process worked. And they were constantly going, oh, we can do this and we can do that. And I'm going, oh, God, that is so difficult. You really don't understand how difficult that thing is or how long Mm -hmm. it's going to take or how much it's going to cost. And I'd say to them, guys, that's really difficult. And they'd go, not for us. And I'd go, mm, yeah, you don't understand what I mean when I say more difficult. You simply think that by working hard, me and the studio in the studio can make it happen. Mm, it doesn't work like that. Yeah. Not only do we have to work hard, but we have to spend a long time doing it. It's going to cost a lot of money. And you know what? Because it's ambitious and hasn't been done before, it might not work. Mm-hmm. All that. But they didn't really get that. The reasons I've just outlined that make things difficult are the reasons it's taken Games Workshop so long. And they've become so expert at it. I have to take my hat off to the guys that do their plastics these days. They are fantastic. Yeah, they're unbelievable. But it's because they got their heads around the technology. They embraced the new technology when it came along and worked with the people that developed that technology, including the three, uh, you know, virtual 3D design. And, uh, we bought the manufacturers. So one of the expansions that we did, and again, this is something that I, uh, I drove as well as you know, the executive team drove, but you know, I was very much behind was we developed a good relationship with a tool maker and then we bought the tool maker. We mm-hmm. developed a great relationship with a manufacturer of plastics, the um, uh, people that actually had all the machinery and then we bought them uh, and so on. So the, company expanded by buying suppliers um we never bought a printer but we did buy up foreign uh, games companies i say foreign that's been kind isn't it non-english speaking yeah. games companies so france germany italy spain um we either bought up companies that were games workshop agents as we did in france and spain or we started new companies from scratch as we did in germany and italy i think um you know i'm not sure when we opened up an australian branch but we if it wasn't about then we'd certainly have expanded it and we expanded the american branch uh and so on so Mm -hmm. all that was part of the 
I know it sounds silly, but that was part of the project of which Warhammer the fourth edition was the manifestation. Mm. I really wanted to go back and do a box like we had for second edition. So to me, fourth edition was looking at third and going, it's great. We can't do it anymore. We can't do it because we've suddenly incurred this massive debt and the studio, how can I put it? The original studio that produced all those really beautifully produced books had been reduced by about 50%. We'd lost half the staff and we'd gone to a desktop publishing operation rather than a proper print operation. The desktop publishing operation was still in its infancy. So what we were doing was producing something that was quite primitive in terms of production standards. We could no longer afford to do full color printing. Mm -hmm. We couldn't afford to even do bespoke color for the inside section. I, I did a 16 page color section in Warhammer 4, but it was all reprints from White Dwarf. Mm -hmm. We're cut to the bone in terms of our resources um, because we've now got a 10 million pound debt that we have to service. And we're trying to do things, I won't say on the cheap, because we've actually moved into a spanking new studio. And the reason we moved into that was because we had to convince people, that uh, these, uh, uh, these investors, venture capitalists, that we were a company that was serious. And the old studio, where we'd done all the beautiful work, was a complete dive. Water coming through the ceilings, cold, it was horrible. Mm -hmm. The new place was really spangly. That's where the bunny went. <laughs> And we'd invested in computers to do the desktop publishing. So it looked really professional. But as I say, we were cut to the bone in terms of costs. Yeah. Hence, Warhammer 4, black and white, looks more primitive, but has got the basic plastics in. We invested massively in those plastics. They were a really push-the-boat-out job because they're big tools that could do multiple um, uh, impressions. And I have to sell a lot of that box to justify doing it. Mm -hmm. So we did that as a relaunch of Warhammer. And that was kind of the format that I wanted to do Warhammer and ultimately 40K in. Big box game, big box starter set that's great value, that's got the core rules in, and then every army has its own army book, which has got not just, the, not just the army list, but all the special rules you need and all the background and uh, a kind of inspiring hobby section insofar as we could. So everything in one. And it had the background to me was almost the most important thing. We did special characters as a way of as, as a way of kind of showing a little light into the background. Here's people that exist in this world. And also as a way of saying, and you can make your own up. We've just made some up. Here they are. Mm -hmm. That was why I did special characters. And some of those special characters were made and became really popular. And hence the idea of special characters being something that was not just an idea, but was part of the game began in that format. But that wasn't the intent. The intention was you had a book which not only provided the rules for this game but which also shed a light on the world and in those peoples and that, that culture and that society in a way in which brian would have appreciated and done and i love doing those um 
And that was uh, that was kind of a big transition. I think that established the format for Warhammer pretty much thereafter. I know thereafter we went to a hardback book again mm-hmm. for the rules, but we always did a starter set. Um, the fifth version was 1996. Um, by then, the whole thing was just so well established, and the idea of doing a repeat on the uh, on the game it came from sales primarily. It was just a tidied up version of the same game. I think the following one, 2000, by then we'd built the studio. I got more staff on board. And bearing in mind, for fourth edition and for second 40k, mm-hmm. I was doing a lot of that grunt work. I mean, I basically was doing the design work on those games. I know I I had help from other people, particularly from um, Andy Chambers and Jervis Johnson. Mm-hmm. To some extent, Nigel. Um, but we were short of games design staff, to be honest. And we were doing lots of new games as well, as well as things like, um, you know, at the time we still weren't terribly sure whether we could sell board games and uh, with new versions of Talisman, for example. Um, and the sales guys were very keen that we had a volume of product that there was no way I could uh, keep up, or even me and Jervis and Andy could uh, uh, keep. So we were employing more staff, and um, one of the staff that we employed at that time was um, Thomas Pyrenin. Mm-hmm. And he had gone on to become a big um, uh, part of the Warhammer team. Uh, that was his passion. He was a Finnish War- Warhammer champion, I think. We'd also got Alessio Cavatori on board, who'd come as an um, Italian translator originally to do, uh, to do the Italian version of uh, Warhammer. Mm-hmm. So now we've got some more capable but young and inexperienced designers. And I felt that Thomas had got enough experience to do the new version of Warhammer. So I handed it over to him. He, I, I did a brief for it. I think you have to do that. You establish the basic parameters. You know, is it a book? Is it, is it a box? Is it, what is it? Um, obviously, it was the Warhammer game. It couldn't change too much. And I think Thomas took that on board. The background, similarly, you couldn't. Ch- you, there were certain things by now that had just become canon. But the game itself had a little bit of flexibility in it. And Thomas took that on board. We had to change the magic system from scratch because the old one had been written for the card system which you probably remember. Oh, yeah. The card system was great when we were an English language only um, product. Ah, one yes. of Tom's, uh, yeah, one of Tom's strategies was to build the business using, by, by actually selling it, by, by having our own, uh, you know, French, Spanish words, so on and so forth. At that time, I'd not really twigged. It was the thing I didn't quite twig because we were already selling English language product in these company in these countries, and some of these countries were themselves translating versions of the game. So France actually had a version of Warhammer; it's just the old version. Oh, but, interesting! Yeah, which they, they translated, yeah. Um, but very quickly, the sales guys in these countries decided they had to have everything that was in English had to be in their language. I thought that was unnecessary. You know, you could build the the, the business with whatever they had uh, or be slightly out of date or do something that was a little bit le- less thorough. But the message came back loud and clear from sales that no, everything we do in English, we have to do in German, French, Spanish, Italian, 
and eventually Chinese, Japanese. It was really, really, actually Japanese and Chinese, I think we never did full versions of, but they had to have Chinese and Japanese on the packaging for um, miniatures. And when they said that, I don't think the guys in sales realised that what this meant was that the boxes were suddenly going to go from having lavish little descriptions and stats on the back in English to just having photos and a bit of captioning. Because what else can you do? Yeah. And, and exactly. sales guys hated that, but it was their <laughs> it was their demand to have everything in every language that made it exactly. so. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And they used to really give me a hard time about it, especially John. But, you know, what can you do? We did try at one point doing sleeves in like specific languages. So you could have an English sleeve, a Spanish sleeve, a French sleeve, and so on. But that puts so much cost and complexity into the product that the yeah. factory then complained. <laughs> so the factory really didn't hated that. So, you know, in the end, we just had to re revert to something that was characterless, admittedly, but pragmatic. Uh, there you go. Um, but the same thing happened after a fashion with the games because suddenly we couldn't have these massive boxes of cards for the magic system. Right. We'd already translated and re uh, released those products into the Spanish and the Italian and you know, German uh, French markets. So they already had those things in, um, in, in uh, those specific languages. Italy was the worst. Italy is the one that sold the fewest volume. The Italian version of War Magic lost money. No matter how Ooh. much we um, sold it for, we couldn't get it for the amount we sold it for. And we couldn't sell it for a realistic amount for what we could print it for. Because it was so expensive to print all those cards in those languages. Um, so... The message came down very loud and clear uh, from the sales, from accounts, from factory. These things don't work. Yeah. So we knew we had to change the card system into a dice-driven or some other type of system. And that was um, – Thomas understood that. I think he, he – I don't know whether he was part and parcel. He probably wasn't part and parcel of the um, – there's exact discussions because they were, you know, they went on at the shouty level. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Minch's release meetings and management meetings, which I would have still been a part. So the sixth edition was where I really finished. I handed it over to Thomas. Thomas did a brilliant job on it. I did play mm -hmm. a few times, but to be honest, Brad, that was my end of the relationship with Warhammer. Um, I was always very passionate about Warhammer and continued to be. Um, I was always there for the games designers if they wanted to come and talk to me about it. And they sometimes did and sometimes didn't. Thomas did. Alessio always did. Um, so, you know, it wasn't completely the end of it. But in terms of my writing the game, being the author of it, that's where it all ends with six in 19. Oh, no, wait a minute. To 2000, year 2000. Now, if you have not listened to an episode that I think is entitled Rick Priestley Spills the Beans, um, Rick, you dropped a bomb on me the last time we did this where you talked about coming up with a concept for what became the end times, but years before what became the end times. You also talked a lot about, we talked about uh, the development of very specialist games, Warmaster in particular, which I know is a passion yeah. of yours. 
Um, speaking of Warhammer Fantasy. So guys, rather than rehashing that for you now, as we already have literally wonderful hours of conversation already recorded and up on the Cast Dice podcast space, please go and look those up. Um, if you've enjoyed the episode so far, you're going to love that too. So please do go back and check. Um, and I don't normally say this, but in this case, I think those stories, if you have not heard them, are amazing and you have to go check them out. With the old world coming up any second now, um, how do you feel about this coming back? Warhammer's back. You spent so many years, particularly in the early days, bringing this to life and creating this universe and this world. I mean, obviously 40K has kept going and going and going, but the Warhammer world ended. Now we're going back and we're going back to a very specific time, 200 years before end times, 100 years after Sigmar showed up. How does that feel for you, if you don't mind my asking, right? Um, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, I think 2015 was the end times, wasn't it? And uh, Games Workshop decided to turn its back on the Warhammer world. Yeah. Um, yeah, I must admit, you know, at the time I thought, oh, that's that's a bit, <laughs> that stings a bit. Because mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I spent so long with that world. And also it was so beautifully um, envisaged by that role-playing team. And I think they, they are the people that in many ways give it its extra depth. Um, but, you know, I was, I was quite closely involved with it for all those years and had a passion for it. Um, yeah, yeah, it, it was a little bit sad, but, you know, Games Workshop, they could do what they like. They can move. I, I'd already left for about five years by then. And, mm -hmm. you know, as I say, it's four, as we speak, it's 14 years ago I left Games Workshop. I've not looked at anything since, um, deliberately, really. Um, but um, when they announced they were doing the old world again, I thought, well, that's, that's, that surprised me. Having failed to make it work once, or we'll make mm -hmm. some things work again. Um, I've not seen it. I don't think. I think it launches this weekend. Um, uh, I think some nice. some people have had advanced copies because I've been looking at various things on YouTube where people have mm -hmm. been reviewing it or talking about the snippets of information Games Workshop put out. I think it's really interesting that they've chosen to do it in a format that is quite. It, it's very good for established gamers, particularly if they have any of the core armies they're going to re-release. They're, right. only, they're only supporting about half the armies fully. The others have been done in a PDF and they won't be supported going forward, I understand. Right. I can see what... I think that's commercially very canny. One of the things I fought against when I was at Games Workshop was expanding the number of armies because I thought it was just... It was difficult enough properly supporting the armies that we had why add more? Yeah. If you can't support the dozen you've got, why add Ogre, King, Ogre Kingdoms was the one for me. I thought it was just stupid doing that. And I say that without any comment about the quality of those models or the game or the army list. It's just having it. Um, to me, you really needed to focus on what you had because I think my, my, this, is, this is a Rick truism, so obviously totally unreliable um i think in any fantasy game you can get away with about six armies i think six armies will give you a full game spectrum 
after that you start kind of doing variations on one of the ideas um and i i think that was the case with warhammer so we we had lots of things in there which to me were already variations on ideas nice to have plenty of room to explore but if you don't have the sculpting resource and you don't have the design resource and you don't have the space in in marketing to actually sell all these things then you you're just disappointing people because you'll have endless dwarf players chaos to and you know and hit, uh, hand up here i did these <laughs> chaos dwarves come along mm-hmm. suddenly there's no material for chaos dwarves or, or even you know i'm a dark elf player where's my dark elf stuff sorry that'd be next year or the year after um so i think going to a limited selection of stuff that can be supported going forward in a time when people just demand that is very sensible even though it will upset a lot of people and it has and it <laughs> has but you can't please everyone all the time no and i think you have to be robust about it and cheerful um and then they've incorporated the um armless all into fixed books again if they can steady the game at a level of balance that's reasonably good yeah that doesn't have an obviously better army and doesn't have an obviously weaker army but they're all relatively good and i say relatively because i'm not big on balance i think if you're a tournament player and you want balance you're playing with a subset of the game what these guys are selling is the game yeah uh, it's got to be as appealing to people who have picked it up for the first time and are kind of getting to grips with it as it has for the hardened players who know that this plus one or that plus one or this magic item used at this time is going to win me the game <laughs> yeah fine <laughs> you know it should have a narrative quality to it and not just appeal to the really hardened players um and i think the i think the diary of doing the army list in a book is nice if it sets the game on a tournament level for those people then yeah. you've got these army books which they're adding on which to me are the ones which are just adding the the, the, the narrative uh, and the special characters are all in those books mm-hmm. i believe yep and uh, the and the yeah. back of the book lists that we used to see in sixth ed the alternative yep. army list that yeah. flesh out the other ones give you yes. alternative ways there's something thomas uh, introduced but i'm not sure where, where the idea came from but they're very much in line with the let's vary this let's not just mm-hmm. have the perfect game that a tournament player will suddenly line this up and this up and this up and have this army and this build and da, 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 da. all that you kind of start to break apart when you do these alternative um uh, type of lists. Um, that strikes me as a very good idea i just wonder if they're going to sell because no matter how nice they are so many people go no this is the tournament version therefore it's the game and if you've pushed the game very strongly in that direction which i think games which i have with everything um, and was happening when i was there i can't, mm-hmm. I can't you know i tried to pull it back a few times not not very successfully um but um if that's where the game is and that's where people's heads are in this day and age then you perhaps going against the grain you know you're fighting you're pushing water uphill yeah um so i wish them success with that but i'm not sure how successful it will be i think what they've done is something which is commercially very strong because even if those books don't sell they'll only have they'll only have wasted the print on a few books exactly um and reprinting some old models yeah 
yeah, obviously they're not committed huge amounts of uh, toy soldier manufacture to this. I believe there are some new mo models that go with the new, the supported yeah. ranges, but not with the other. So to me, this looks like a bit of a toe in the water job, but very well done in that respect. It's a very yeah. canny way of doing it. Now, I do know that people are up on up, up the arms about some of these things. Mm -hmm. um, as I say, you can't please everyone all the time. The proof of the pudding will be whether the game is engaging enough to keep people committed once they've made the initial purchases. Yeah. And the gameplay to me looks very solid. It looks as if they've used a sixth, I think, as a basis for it. It is. Um, which makes me think that the guys who've done it, and of course they don't really tell you who's done it, and I don't know any of the current designers, but it looks as if they've probably got a personal reference back to six or nostalgic back to that nostalgic reference back to that mm -hmm. which is heartening and uh the way they're doing magic reminds me a bit of the way we did magic in third mm -hmm. uh, which is again interesting the only bit of the gameplay that i'm looking at and going and, and i mean you know the old engineer sucks teeth ooh, dear, mm -hmm. I don't want, is the post-combat resolution because yeah. they've made it complicated. They have. They've made it complicated. Again, it reminds me of third. It's one of the things that didn't work well in third. Um, and the reason it doesn't work well to have lots of post-combat combat movement is because it, it throws up so many questions. I call it a um, can of worms or a troublemaker. If you move units post-combat, that's always a troublemaker. So the less post-combat movement you have, the fewer problems you will have to iron out. Third edition had lots of post-combat movement, and that's why it was such a complicated game in many ways. You have to, if you're going to have a unit that's defeated in combat, but which moves backwards, you have to then take account of everything that's in the way. Mm -hmm. And how does it move? How does it react? What happens? Um, and then if you have um, uh, a... a an options uh, movement for the guys that are going to move forward, you have to get through the same. Um, and what do you do with combats that are in two di different directions? You know, you're fighting to the side, you're fighting to the front. Where do you work out the posture? It suddenly becomes very complicated geometry that has lots of what ifs. Um, and the reason I took that out of third edition was to eliminate a lot of those what ifs. And the reason I took out um, a lot of the routing, uh, for example, where you had units that were moving in route, was because I, it just eliminated all those what-ifs and made the game play a lot tighter. Yeah. What they've done, as far as I can see, makes the game play a lot looser. Yeah. Um, in, in that respect. So I'm thinking they've either been a bit ambitious and done something that's probably going to have to be um, updated or changed or what they say retcons these days don't they i don't quite know what means. yeah in the future or they've been very 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 clever far cleverer than i and hal and all the guys that did all this stuff in the past and actually got it to work that might be the case I mean, you know given they've only had to deal with that as a problem in which case, I take my hat off to them. Mm -hmm. We shall see. But it was the oh, one 
just the one bit that gave me pause for thought. Well, as they do say, Rick, only time will tell. Yeah. And um, I think, and unfortunately, our time is up for today. And I hate to say that, given that we could probably talk for hours more. And I think that just means if you're willing, we might just have to do this again sometime. Absolutely, Brad. All the best. Rick, it is always a pleasure having you on, sir. Thank you so much for coming on. I could listen to you talk about, I mean, literally anything all day long. It's wonderful. Um, again, I can't thank you enough for making the time for coming on. It is just wonderful to, uh, to talk shop. So have a good one, sir. And we look forward to seeing you soon. Um, you too, Brad. Have a good one and speak again soon. Bye. Now, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening to Cast Dice. If you have any requests for the future, please find us on Facebook under Cast Dice, C-A-S-T-D-I-C-E. And as my buddy Casey always says, when you are playing the games that we know and love, I hope that your dice roll hot. I hope that your beverages are cold. But more than that, we at Cast Dice hope that you are having fun. Stay safe out there, guys. Good night. Are gone and they're trapped by.